Father, just thank you for the, the impact of the ministry of the Master's mission, its passion and commitment to train people in what it really means to be a missionary, to equip them properly to go to the field to reach the unreached and the, the undeveloped areas with the gospel. We thank you for the ministry that, that uh, Phil has, his ministry in music, his ministry in sharing the vision of the Master's ministry, the Master's mission. We just pray that you would continue to uphold them, give them the, the people that they need to do your work, give them the resources financially that they require. God, they have been such a blessing to many lives in our student body, and Lord, it is our hope and expectation that in the future years we will continue to minister alongside them. And Father, in this chapel, in the next few minutes that we have, 30 minutes or so, we just pray that your Spirit will indeed touch our lives, that we will be challenged from the Word of God, and that you will be magnified and glorified. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning. Grab your Bible out. It needs to be dried out. Break the, break the uh, pages apart. And I want you to turn to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6. You've heard Betty say uh, at, at times past that she sits on the admissions committee. And as you know, I think that there are several people, uh, faculty, staff members, including Betty as our representative from Student Life, who sits on the committee and we go through every single file that is processed for admission to the college. And during the summertime when Betty is out of town, um, I kind of step in. She asked me to step in and, and I read the file. And it always is fascinating to me to read the testimony part, particularly the part, and if you're a student here, you've been through this questionnaire, you've been through the application, and you've answered these questions, and there is a question on there that asks you to give your testimony, to talk about, to explain to us how you came to know the Lord. There's also a question on there that's related to why it is you want to come to the Master's College. And many, many files, many, many people, time and time again, will say that they want to come to the Master's College because they want to learn what it means to be a Christian. And I think that um, because we are, we are a Christian college and because many of us come from Christian homes, Christian high schools, Christian backgrounds, we fail to remember that there are many people here on campus that are still trying to sort out in their mind and their heart what it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian? is the question that they're trying to get an answer to. And we have many of those students here on the campus. Not too many weeks ago, in the first semester, we were dealing with an issue in our office, and, and as I was talking to some guys about another student that they had come to talk to me about, um, one of them mentioned to me, well, Dave, this guy is still trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian. I mean, this is a babe in Christ. This is someone who has no clue of what it means to walk with the Lord, no clue of what it means to, to be Christ-like. He's still trying to sort that out. And I remember when I went to college, and you've heard me tell that many times, that I went to college and I was saved, and then four weeks later, I showed up on a Christian college campus. I didn't come from a saved family. My parents were not believers. I didn't have any saved friends. I had never met a saved coach. I played ball in my life, but had never met a saved coach, at least not one that I knew was saved. Um, not that coaches aren't saved. There are saved coaches. But in my background, I didn't have a saved coach. And I didn't know anybody that was a Christian. The guys that I went to Christian college with, the two guys, Tim and, and Steve, both basketball, one's a basketball player and one's a baseball player, we, we huddled in the car together. And on the way down, the three of us started discussing what it might mean to be a Christian. We, hadn't, we didn't have a clue. All three of us had been saved within weeks of each other. 
Steve was an All-American basketball player. Tim was a baseball player. My, all three of us from the same state high school. Steve was an All-American all basketball player. Steve, uh, Tim was a baseball player, and I played baseball. And we were all going, having recently been saved in a youth revival, to a Christian college. The pastor that led us to the Lord, the youth pastor, was a graduate of Christian college, and so he encouraged us to go to, to study not only uh, academics and to play ball, but to also to learn about the Lord. And we thought that was a great idea. As brand-new Christians, we thought, man, what, what could be better? To, to do what we enjoy to do, play ball, but also to do it with Christians. But as we were going down in the car, the three of us realized that we had no idea of what that meant. We didn't know what it meant to be a Christian. And it really was, I wish I could have recorded that conversation because we had to drive about 450 miles in a station wagon together. And for those eight, nine hours, we discussed what it possibly could mean when we get to this college to be a Christian. None of us had Christian families. Tim's parents weren't Christians. Steve's parents weren't Christians. My parents weren't Christians. None of us had Christian friends, but we were all brand new converts going to this Christian college. And then we started, somebody had sent, I think it was Steve, a student handbook. And when they sent him a student handbook, the college that I went to was very conservative and the student handbook was quite detailed and it was quite thick. And so for several minutes and into hours, we started discussing what the school might think it means to be a Christian. I mean, that was a good idea. What we should do is try to find out what the handbook says a Christian is. And that was the only thing we had. So we started reading through the student handbook trying to figure out what it's going to mean when we get this college to be a Christian. And we had it down. We thought, okay, this is what it means. And we found out for the first time that we're going to have to go to chapel five days a week. That was one of the first rules in the handbook. And first of all, that was, we, Steve said, we started discussing that. Now, you have, to, you have to picture this. None of us had ever been in church on a regular basis. At that point in my life, I probably had been to church maybe, well, it had been four weeks. I may have been to church eight times, maybe nine or ten, including the revival that I got saved in. And so I had been to church maybe less than ten times. Steve had been to church less than ten times. And the same was true of Tim. And when we found out we were going to have to go to what we thought would be church five days a week, all semester long, all year long, I mean, that was a little, that was a little, we thought that was a little much. And so Steve informed me, he said, hey guys, but we're, but we're jocks. He said, we'll get out of it somehow. He said, uh, we'll figure out some way to get around this rule. And so we thought, oh yeah, they'll do that. They'll, we'll get out of it somehow. We can't, surely they're not going to expect us to be in church five days a week. And then we, then we went on and we found out we had to be in church Sunday too. It was getting worse. I mean, going from bad to worse. Now we're going to have to, we're going to, have to be in church six days a week. And so we kept going through the handbook trying to figure out what it is we're going to be expected to do. Uh, very naively and very immaturely thinking this is what it's going to mean to be a Christian. Now I don't think that we have too many students that come to our campus that was as dumb as I was. But I think that we definitely have students who come to our campus who are very young in the Lord. And sometimes people are young in the Lord not because they were recently saved on the calendar. Maybe they've saved, maybe you've been saved five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, and you're still not sure what it means to be a Christian. There's not been much growth in your life. So whether you've been saved months or weeks right before registering or maybe even years, I think a lot of us are still asking the question of ourselves, what is a Christian? I hope you're asking yourself that question because that's definitely one of the things that we're wanting to struggle with during your time at the college. And as you think through that question, as I did this morning in putting together this message, I, my first response as I thought, well, what is a Christian? The very first thing that came to my mind, I don't know what the very first thing is that comes to your mind. What is a Christian? The number one thing, it wasn't even something I had, I wasn't reading, I was just sitting at my desk praying, what does it mean to be a Christian? Pop into my mind, it is a person whose heart desires to give worship to God. 
number one thing that came to my mind. And as I thought, well, what does that mean? And as I looked up, grabbed the book that was on my shelf and pulled it off, I found this definition. It says, worship is pure adoration, the lifting up of the redeemed spirit toward God in contemplation of his holy perfection. Worship is pure adoration of God, giving honor, praise, and glory to the only one in the universe who deserves it. Oh, what a profound definition. But that's not enough, is it? Because as I was sitting at my desk, I thought, okay, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone who worships. The very next question then that comes to my mind, what comes to your mind? What comes to mind is, okay, then what does it mean on Monday morning, on Tuesday morning, on Thursday night to worship God? I mean, what does that look like? How do I know that that is happening in my life? How do I see that and acknowledge that in people's lives around me? If that's what a Christian is, a worshiper, and worship is to give adoration to God, how do I, how do I see that? How do I, how do I know that it is something that I'm growing in? How do I know that that is something that we're seeing in each other's life? How can I be a part of someone's life and seeing that become reality in their experience? I mean, that's what I was thinking of. Okay, I want to worship, and I want to encourage others to worship, but how do we do that together? And as I thought about that, you, you, the, uh, the very next question then is, where does worship really take place? Where do I worship the greatest or the, in, in the most, have the most opportunity to worship? And my first, and I wrote them down on the paper as I was sitting there, and I thought, well, I worship in church. And maybe you thinking about that, you think, well, worship takes place in church, worship takes place in chapel, worship takes place on a hill someplace. Maybe I've got a special spot that I go to. And I thought about that because one of the things that I so much loved in college because of all the people around me was that I, would, I found a place on Lookout Mountain outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, way up on the hills. And it was right on, over a fence on the flat of a rock where I could sit kind of underneath a little cliff. I had to jump down about four or five feet and no one could see me. And on the nights where there were a full moon or when the moon at least was bright enough that I could read, I would go up to that spot and I did that faithfully almost every single month of my college career and I would take my Bible nothing else and I'd get on that rock and I would pray and I would spend the night many nights on that on that hill on that cliff praying to God and I, and I thought about well that's where worship takes place in my life it takes place in church it takes place in chapel it took place on that rock and maybe you have a spot like that a special place like that but then I thought well you know that's not the only place though that we give honor and glory to God and I would suggest to you this morning that there are places other than church and chapel in a special place of special hideaway where worship is most keenly felt and worship is most difficult to offer and worship is most powerful in its ministry. And you know where that is? This was what came to my mind as I'm still jotting on my paper. You know where worship is most real to me? In my home with my wife, and with my children. If worship is giving adoration to God and bringing honor and glory and praise to Him, then the very first thing I thought about, well, where do I have the greatest opportunity to do that? Well, I have the greatest opportunity to glorify God with my wife and with my children. And that wasn't a good answer for me. I like the rock idea better. I like the chapel idea better, and I like the church idea better, because those were easier ones for me. I have a lot better time looking worshipful here. 
I have a lot better time looking worshipful when I'm in church on Sunday morning and Sunday night. And I definitely felt good about my worship when I was on that rock. But if you were to walk with me out of those three settings and go into my home, I don't think I'm quite as consistent. I think i got some real struggles there. Because if you could put in this camera, in, and I'm glad that you don't, and, I'm, and you're not, I'm not going to give you permission to do it, if you could put a camera in my house and install it and follow me around in my mornings and with my children and with my wife, you would definitely think, Dave is not a worshiper today, is he? Dave is not giving honor and glory and praise to God today. Look what he is doing. Now, I do okay here. You, if you want, you can put a camera, camera on me in chapel. You can put a camera on me in church. You can put a camera on me when I'm on my little special place and I'm hiding it to now in Los Angeles. It's in a car. That's about the only place I can find to get away from everything, right in my car. And if you want to put a camera in my car, go ahead, because I do really well in those settings. But the hardest place to worship, for me, is in home. And it's because it is the most difficult, I think it is the greatest opportunity for God to be glorified and magnified. Now, if that is true, and I think it is, then as you're jotting down on your little piece of paper, what is a Christian? A Christian is one who is worshiping God, giving honor, praise, and adoration to Him. And where is the opportunity? What circumstance gives me the greatest occasion to worship God? Well, if it's true that the greatest occasion for me is in my home, in those relationships, then you're going to have to put down on your paper then the greatest challenge to me to give honor and glory and praise to God, if you live on campus, is definitely going to be in your dorm room. No question. And when I was in college, that was true of me. We lived in a, two, in a duplex where we had 14 people, seven on one side, seven on the other. We had one bathroom, seven, 14 guys, one bathroom to share among the 14 of us. And just manipulating the bathroom schedule was enough to lose praise and honor and glory and worship to God. And you're facing that too. Because many of you already this year and already even this semester as new students have come to us and said, you know, I want out of my, cl- I want out of my living situation. I want a different roommate. I want a different dorm. I want a different RA. I want a different RD. I, you've dropped in classes. You're, you're picking up classes. You're already sitting different places in the dining hall. You're already doing all kinds of things, even sitting with different people in chapel because it is hard to worship God when you're in contact with sinful people. Maybe you don't live on campus well, then probably the most difficult place for you to worship is in your apartment. If you're living with three or four other guys or three or four other gals. Or maybe you're married and we have several married students and then you're like me, the hardest place for you to worship God and to give Him praise and glory to Him is in the home. And I think that that is going to be always the case. That worship is not just a matter of sitting down and doing the right things and going through the right process and through the right formula and through the right technique, worship primarily involves our relationship with each other. The way the unsaved world, according to John chapter 13, is going to know that we are Christians and thus give glory to our God is what? By the way that we love one another. Worship, first and foremost, is a byproduct of interpersonal relationships among Christians. And that was a struggle that was something that I think that was true of all Christianity, Old Testament and New Testament. It's not something that just you and I struggle with. It is something that is, was true of the Old Testament saints. They messed it up. The Old Testament saints had the same struggle. 
because they thought that maybe all worship was was going through the right sacrifices, going through the right ceremonies, honoring the right days, giving, giving abeyance to the right times of the year. And that's what worship means. And Christ, ha- and the, and the, not Christ, but the Old Testament prophets had to come in and say, look, worship is more than sacrifice. It is a relational thing. And how can you stand before a holy God and tell Him that you love Him and that you want to know Him when your life is characterized by such sinfulness, such wickedness as you touch the people around you? And that was true in the book of Hosea. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, it says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And that is a theme that is found over and over and over in the Old Testament. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, you recall the story when Samuel approached Saul and asked him, what, what, what is the bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears? He had to come to Saul and say, Look, being right with God is more than just offering sacrifice. It is submitting to the authority of the Word of God. It is a principle that the Apostle Paul addressed in Romans chapter 12 as well. After completing the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul goes through all the kind of the panorama of doctrine. And then in chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, he starts to t- explain to us what it means to really be true worshipers. And you know what he says. The Apostle Paul goes right from the definition of worship and an explanation of worship into the very following passages and verses and chapters to expand on that by describing the way you and I should treat one another. And in Romans chapter 12, the, the very following verses after, after Paul gives his definition of worship, he says, worship involves loving one another. It's a personal thing. Worship involves right relationship with authority in chapter 13. Worship involves a right relationship with the weak in chapter 14. Worship involves right relationship with Christians in general in chapter 15 again. I mean, Paul is making it very clear that if you and I are to worship God, we're to worship Him in a way that it affects and impacts our personal relationships. And I think that is something that, that you and I would find that it is true. Now, let me get... Let me get down to some specifics then in our personal relationship. I think that the, as I thought about it, sitting down again on my piece of paper, thinking, what is the most difficult circumstance that I face when it comes to being loving to the people around me? In other words, what is it that is really the greatest challenge to me giving worship to people? What is happening when I find it toughest? What is happening when I fail the most often? And it didn't take me long to to think on that one. Because the the thing that I face and that you face that is the greatest and most frequent challenge to our worship to God in our relationship with people is when people sin. Right? And I think the the principle that is found in Luke chapter 5 is so real. I mean, Christ made it it very plain plain in that passage. In fact, you can turn there if you would. In Luke chapter 5, He said, It is easy to show love to someone that does good to you. That's not a problem. It says, love your, love your enemies, though, and do good to those who hate you, and bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you in one cheek, turn the other. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and everyone who takes what belongs to you, and do not demand it back. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Christ is setting down a very real and very difficult principle here in Luke 5. And that is that if we're to look in our lives for evidence that we are under control of the Holy Spirit, 
the circumstance to, to evaluate that is not when we're being treated in a loving way by the people around us, right? Because anyone will be loving when, when being treated in a, in a kind way, in a nice way. In fact, he goes on to say even the unbelievers would do that. I mean, that's not tough. That's not a test. That's not a good circumstance for you and I to look at our lives and say, well, look, we're, we love God because look at the way we're treating this person. And look at the glory and the honor we're giving because we're loving each other. Christ said, no, that's not the time. The time that is the most difficult and the circumstance that is the most trying is when we're not being treated kindly. And when we're not being treated with mercy and grace and consideration. And it is at that time that we have to draw upon the Holy Spirit. And it is at that time our flesh is incapable of giving honor and worship and glory to God. And that is at that time that we really can look at our lives and say, am I a worshiper of God? Am I someone who gives praise to God? Am I someone who is committed to being a Christian in the way that Jesus Christ defines it? And as I went through that, I thought, well, you know, in the New Testament, there's a lot said about how you and I should respond to a Christian who is in sin. And I think if there's anything that is that certainly is one of the most practical for us as a community is to be drawn to the reality that you and I depend upon each other for our sanctification. You and I need the ministry of one another in our lives if we're to be what Christ designed us to be. That's the whole theme of, of Ephesians chapter 4, that if we are to be built up into Him, if we are to grow into Christ, then we require the ministry that you have to give to me and you require the ministry that I have to give to you and you require the ministry that each of you have with your roommates to give to each other. It's a necessity. Because it's not going to work if we all find our little Bibles and, our, and maybe our cassette tape decks and go out on a little rock somewhere and decide, I'm going to grow with God and I'm going to learn what it means to be a worshiper and so I'm going to spend all my time alone. Now that's, that's necessary and that's certainly a, a vital part of your spiritual growth. But the key to walking with the Lord is going to be found in your interpersonal relationships, particularly as you interact with those who sin against you. Now, that's tough to say because that puts all of us in an uncomfortable category because we immediately say, well, you know, Dave, I don't do too well there. I, I struggle when, with my roommate. I mean, I'm okay when my roommate turns the stereo down when I say I want to study. But man, when I tell them to turn it down and I ask them kindly, but Dave, I mean, I've asked them kindly three or four times and they don't do it. And I've, and I've been Christ-like for, you know, a little bit of time, but I mean, only a person can only take so much. And I know what that feels like. I've been married, I know you're going you to find this hard to believe because I look so young, but I, I've been married 12 years. Yeah. I've had, a, I've had the same roommate for 12 years. The same person that, that uh, I had year one of my marriage and the conflicts that we had, I didn't have the opportunity to fill out a little sheet in the dean's office and say, I'd like to change roommates. This person, I don't like the way this person acts. You know, I've, I've asked her to do something and she doesn't do it. And I get on her nerves. I mean, let's just change roommates here. I mean, I get on her nerves too. I mean, I, do, I, I continue after 12 years Every single day, virtually, of our 12 years of marriage, she's asked me to pick up the same pair of socks every single day. I mean, we, we come into conflict with, with each other almost daily. And I know what that is like. I'm not in college anymore, 
but I think that I know what it's like to have conflict with a, with a close person, with a person who lives and watches everything that I do. And whether you're married or not, you're experiencing that. And to put life and to put our lives under a little, little uh, microscope and to say, well, you know, that's when we need to see whether or not we're really following God is in that relationship. That's pretty tough. I don't like that. That makes me uncomfortable. It probably makes you a little uncomfortable as well. Particularly if our roommate is someone who sins against us at times and is imperfect. And most of you, I think we asked for a show of hands, and I said, how many of you have an imperfect roommate? I think most of you raise your hand and say, I think I've got one. And I think if I'm really honest, my roommate has an imperfect roommate, if you're really honest. So what do we do as Christians? When you and I come into contact with a sinner, particularly a sinner that we can't run from, a sinner who is a friend, a sinner who lives in our room or in our apartment or in our house, what does the Scripture call us to in our responsibility to that person when they sin against us? Well, let me, let me give you some things. Now, I'm just gonna, we're, just about, we're just about to the end. Let me just read these off to you. There are, it's interesting that the New Testament says there are eight things not to do when a person sins. When your friend sins, when my friend sins, when my wife sins, or when my, one of my children sins, there are eight things the Scripture says very specifically that you and I are not to do when a friend sins, when we see them sin, or when they sin against us. Now, that was very interesting. Listen to those. Number one, in Matthew chapter 18, and also in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14, the Scripture says, you know, one thing that you should not do in relationship to your friend's sin is to not in any way encourage it, not to cause them to stumble. Not to somehow be a party to their sin. Not to somehow aggravate it and multiply their sin. And Christ said that in very, very powerful words. There is a strong condemnation coming from our Savior's lips if we are in any way encourage someone to be involved and entangled in sin. The second thing that the New Testament reminds us of is that we are not to boast about sin. And it's interesting, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a story that we're all very familiar with, the Apostle Paul is addressing a very, very deeply sinful situation with one of the members of the church. And Paul is so taken back by this community of believers because they are so proud of their own spirituality as individuals and corporately as a church that when the Apostle Paul sees a very wicked engagement in sin in one of the members' lives, the church is still thinking that they're so spiritual, they're so great, and the individuals think that way so powerfully that they boast about it. They're still bragging about their spirituality. They're still saying, yes, I know that I'm, I'm in, uh, this person's involved in that, but we're still a spiritual group. Or, yes, I know I'm involved in this, but I'm still someone who's worshiping God. And Paul is grieved by that. How can you boast when you're involved in sin? How can you boast when your friend is involved in sin? How can you maintain a posture of, of spiritual vibrancy when sin is all around you? The third thing the New Testament says is don't keep company with the sinner. Now, that's an interesting admonition, particularly if we're talking about roommates. I don't know what you think, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that, Dave, what do you do? you get up and go sleep in the living room on the couch when your wife's in sin? I mean, what do I do? Do I get up and go sleep in the lounge when my roommate is in sin? I don't think that that's the point at all of Psalm 1. I don't think that's the point at all even what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. The point, obviously, and we find the same thing repeated in, in Proverbs chapters 5, 6, and 7, the point is that you and I should not in any way walk alongside a sinner in such a way that we now are somehow involved in, the, in their sin with them. 
I mean, that seems to be a, a very clear admonition from the Scripture. Something that you and I struggle with, particularly if the person involved in sin is a close friend. And they're going to go out this weekend and they're going to do something and, and I'm going to do it with them. Or at least I'm going to be there with them and I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to be there. And already this year we've heard a, several stories from students who we've talked to about things that are going on in their life. And, and the response is quite commonly, well, I was there, but I wasn't doing it. And the scripture makes it very clear, well, why are you even there? Why are you letting your good be evil spoken of? Why are you in the neighborhood, in the vicinity of sin? And the scripture warns us not to do that. The fourth thing, don't take an offense, the offense of sin before unbelievers. Now, this is an interesting one, one that I had to face when I went away to college. As a freshman in college and having unsaved parents, when I was involved in, in some really uncomfortable things and some, some sinful things with some roommates and some staff, one of the first things I had to decide was, well, do I call my parents who aren't believers? And to explain to them what is happening to me. To explain to them how this person who works for this Christian college sinned against me. To explain to them a struggle that I'm having with a quote-unquote Christian roommate. And that was a real challenge because I'd always talked to my, to my mom about what was going on. And I thought, well, maybe I explained to her how that this, is, this challenge is facing me, how this conflict is going on in my life, and maybe she could help me straighten it out. But, you know, I think the principle of 1 Corinthians 6 is that you and I need to be careful with that. Whether it's the unbeliever is a friend, a family member, or someone else who just simply doesn't know the Lord, to take your conflict that you're having with another sinner before an unbeliever is a very serious issue. One that the Scriptures and the Apostle Paul warns us against. Of course, in 1 Corinthians 6, he's doing it in a very formal way in a court, but I think the principle is true of all of us. And, all, and again, think about this. How many times have you, in a sense, defamed the honor and the glory of God by going home for a weekend or going home for a Christmas vacation and sitting down with one of your old high school cronies, a guy or a gal who's unsaved, or maybe an aunt or an uncle who doesn't know the Lord, and, and, and you're feeling so so tight because of all this conflict you've had with a Christian roommate or, or maybe you're feeling that you weren't treated justly by a faculty member or a staff member or maybe me or one of my staff and you sat down with one of those people and said, you know, man, this person, I just can't, I just can't believe this. And you start venting all of your anger and bitterness in the ears of an unsaved person. Do you realize the impact that has, the Apostle Paul says? Do you realize the obstacle that is to the gospel of Jesus Christ? So that's another warning. A fifth thing that the Scripture says that James tells us in James chapter 4, verse 11, is don't speak evil of your brother. And the word there, kataleo, is the word to simply mean defame. Now this is, you know, I've already spoke on this, and I'm not going to go back into this, but obviously because I repeat it almost every time I'm up here, it is something that's very real on this campus. In James chapter 4, James makes a strong observation and warning against us being involved in the activity of taking away the good reputation of a brother or sister in Christ. And I've given a whole chapel to that. And guys and gals, I mean, it is definitely going to continue to be a challenge for all of us that we're not in the business of that. That's a challenge to me because I hear so much. You come and tell me so much about your life. You come and tell me your struggle. And what if I was to take that information or Betty was to take that information or the RDs who, who deal with so much that's going on in your life and we were to take that and to go into this little group and say, well, let me tell you about what so-and-so is struggling with and take away your good reputation. That's what the word means, kataleleo, to defame, to strip someone of a good reputation. And really, I mean, if you stop and think about it, I think all of us 
probably justifiably could have that done. I know there's enough sin in my life that if you wanted to take it and record it and start repeating it, you could easily strip me of a good reputation. And I know that we could do that with you. So James's warning doesn't come in, the, in some sort of false fantasy that you and I are sinless, but rather in the light of the reality that we're all struggling with sin. And it is actually in that context that you and I need to be careful not to take that ministry and that information and take it and strip someone of their good name. And so that's not a way to respond to sin. A sixth thing that the Scripture says is don't be proudful. When you see someone else in sin, a wrong response to that is to somehow be encouraged in your own heart that I'm not like them. Whether it be the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican or whether it be 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where the Apostle Paul talks about the the story of Moses in the wilderness and that the reason that God gives us some of these stories in the Old Testament is so that you and I will learn from those and that you and I won't be like they were and to be somehow built up in our confidence and to think that we are not subject to the wickedness and the sinfulness of other people. And the Apostle Paul and Jesus Christ and reminds us that, look, one of the ways that you and I can't respond to sin when we see it in other people's lives is somehow to think, to make that build up our pride. Think, well, you know... Well, I'm glad I'm not like that person. How many times have you felt that way and thought that way to yourself? Man, I know I have. Because it does feel good a little bit to do that, doesn't it? Sometimes it's kind of nice to see someone struggle with something that you don't. Because in all your struggles, sometimes you'd like to think, you know, I'm, I'm making progress here. And one of the false ways of feeling that way is to see what someone else is struggling with and to say, well, you know, I'm not like that. And whether you verbalize it or not in your heart, you feel a sense of pride and confidence. And the Scripture says, don't do that. God says, that's not a proper response. A seventh thing that, the, that Paul again says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26, is don't fight or argue with someone who is in sin. An eighth thing that we can go back to 1 Samuel chapter 15 about, that Samuel warned Saul, and I think God is warning us, not to somehow justify our brother or our friends who are involved in sin. So those are eight things that the Scripture says. Let me just read to you the five things the Scripture says do. If someone is sinning and our brother, our roommate, or our friend, or our family member is engaged and entangled in sin, what should we do? These are five things. Number one, be broken. And the, the word that is used there, pentheo, is the word that means to deep sorrow as in a death. The Scripture makes it very clean that the right response, heart response that you and I should have to our brother or sister's sin is to feel deep grief similar to that if someone died in our family. Quite a, quite a profound statement. Secondly, to be committed to restoring them, Galatians 6.1. Thirdly, to be committed to forgiving them when they ask and seek it. Fourthly, to be involved in the ministry of strengthening them. And the term that is used there, the Greek term, means to make strong or to fix or to establish a brother or sister in Christ. And fifthly, the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9-10, to be committed to praying for your brother and sister who is entangled in sin. That's a lot. And as you and I walk around campus and we're involved in touching each other's lives, I think that we need to be sensitive to what do I do that can bring glory and honor and worship to God? How can I show myself to be a true Christian? And when you're asking yourself that question, that you, you immediately think, well, the way that I most clearly show myself to be a Christian is in the way that I relate to the people around me. And the most clear way out of that context to show that I'm a Christian is how do I respond when they're in sin? 
guys and gals, there's people all over this campus who are still asking the question what it means to be a Christian. I think it's characteristic of being a babe. I have two small children in the car yesterday. Taylor was, we were riding to church, and as we were riding the church, Taylor starts asking me questions about what bites. I mean, one thing about babies, they ask a lot of questions. And Taylor says, Dad, does a dog bite? Yes, Taylor, a dog bite. Dad, does a lion bite? Yes, Taylor, a lion bite. Dad, does a giraffe bite? Yes, a giraffe bites. And he starts going through, I don't, he's somehow got this obsession with being bitten right now. And he's going through all this, these animals. And finally, in my frustration to giving him answers to his questions, I turned around in the car because we're on our way to church, and I said, Taylor, look, if it's alive, it's going to bite. Well, then yesterday afternoon, after all the rain, we had a little patio, and you've seen across our campus, what comes out when it rains? Little worms, fishing worms. And I want to show the boys fishing worms because I want to take them fishing. I've never done that yet. And so I go out to the patio, and I pick up a fishing worm, and I show it to Taylor. And I say, Taylor, and I give it to Nate. Nate's... I don't care what it is, he's going to handle it. In fact, I'm fearful he's going to eat it. And so Nate's always in for an adventure. Taylor's the opposite. And he won't even touch the worm. And I said, Taylor, it's a worm. It's a worm. And he says, is it alive? And I says, yes. He says, well, then it's going to bite me. And I said, no, Taylor, fishing worms don't bite. And he said, but you said, Dad, this morning that everything that's alive bites. And so obviously in my frustration to Taylor asking questions, I gave him a wrong answer. And I think that should be a reminder to us spiritually. You are being asked questions all the time by people around you. What does it mean to be a Christian? What kind of answer are you giving them? And the answer that you're giving them predominantly comes from the way that you treat them when they are directing their sin towards you. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that so many times that the scripture reminds us of, of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be Christ-like. Help us, Lord, in our daily activities, in our classroom, in our relationship with the professors, in the dining hall, with our relationship with the staff there, in our job when we go out to earn our money, in our dorm room when we live, in all the relationships we have, God help us to be committed to being like you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.